The most important week in human history is the week that we're studying in these pages of Luke's gospel. It all began on Saturday night. Luke doesn't describe this event, but it all began on Saturday night in the home of a man known as Simon the leper when Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus, foreshadowing the anointing of his body after his corpse would be taken down from the cross and then placed in a borrowed tomb. On Sunday morning, the passage we looked at last week at the triumphal entry was the inception of Jesus making publicly known that he was the long-awaited, anticipated Messiah, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as the Prince of Peace. On Monday morning, Jesus walking into Jerusalem, Luke doesn't describe this particular event, Jesus curses a fig tree as a prophetic act to help us better understand what the clearing of the temple was all about. After cursing the fig tree, walking into Jerusalem, Jesus cleared the temple. We sometimes call it the cleansing of the temple. It's in the opening verses that Michelle read to us just a few moments ago. In fact, that's where I want us to begin. I want us to turn our attention to Monday, April 2nd, A.D. 30, when Jesus clears the temple. Notice how succinct Luke is. Uh, Very abbreviated, much more abbreviated than Matthew and Mark. John doesn't describe this particular event. But as we walk with Jesus to the cross, on Monday morning, Jesus is going to demonstrate that he is God's prophet and God's Messiah. He's going to fulfill a messianic promise in Malachi about suddenly coming and appearing at the temple, and that's exactly what he does. In verse 45, we see his actions. Again, a little bit abbreviated. If we had time, we could look at Matthew and Mark, where it's a little bit more expansive. The court of the Gentiles, which is where these events transpired in verses 45 through 48, was a place that was to be set aside for the worship of God by Gentile people. Israel was to be a light to the nations. And God wanted there to be a place in his temple precinct where Gentiles could approach him in prayer, where they could seek his face. And yet at some point in the decades preceding this, the court of the Gentiles had become something akin to a flea market. It became a place where Gentiles could approach God, but in the background you could hear hear the the bleeding of of sheep. Uh, You could smell the dung of animals. You could hear the, the clanging of silver as people would have to exchange the money that they brought to pay the temple tax for Tyrrhenian coinage And Tyrrhenian coinage was the only coinage you could pay the temple tax. And so you come from Rome or Ephesus or Corinth or some other locale throughout the Roman world, you had to exchange your money just like you do if you go to a foreign land in our day for Tyrrhenian coinage. And if you travel from a great distance, particularly during the Passover season, you're going to make an offering to God and you couldn't bring an animal from Rome, Ephesus, Corinth, or maybe even a a place like Antioch of Syria, and expect the animal to be a suitable sacrifice to Yahweh 
during the Passover. And so they were doing some helpful things. You could buy animals there. You could exchange coinage there. But it became very clear that there were exorbitant fees that were being placed upon the exchange rate for the coinage and upon the purchase of these animals. In addition, it made it impossible for anybody who was a Gentile to go into the temple court and to worship God. This practice was filling the coffers of the family of Annas and Caiaphas, the religious leaders, those that were governing the Sanhedrin, which was the highest religious court of the Jewish faith. And so when Jesus goes into Jerusalem on this day, he comes as a prophet. He comes as a Messiah. He comes as God's spokesperson. And Matthew and Mark tells us that he begins to overturn the tables of the money changers. It seemed like a violent act. And if you, if you watch in movies and somebody overturns a table, it is something of a violent act. And he takes, uh, he takes rope and he begins to drive the animals out of the court of the Gentiles. That's not a picture that's very akin to the kind of mental images we have of Jesus. We often think of Jesus as kind of weak and anemic. We, we see pictures from the Renaissance of Jesus. And the, real, excuse me, the reality is we don't have any idea of what Jesus looked like. But I'm pretty certain Jesus would be what we would call a man's man. He was an artisan, a craftsman a carpenter, a bricklayer. He, he worked on building projects from, from his earliest youth. And then prior to this, for the previous two and a half, three years, he'd been walking very great distances. Uh, he would go to Caesarea Philippi, the Mediterranean coast, Gadara on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee by boat. He, he traveled widely. And most of everywhere he went, with the exceptions of a few brief boat journeys, he walked. And so there was, there was nothing about him that was weak and anemic. And so Jesus' actions demonstrate the actions of prophet Messiah. But notice what he says. He takes two scriptures, two passages, one from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah, one from Isaiah 56, the other from Jeremiah chapter 7. The first from Isaiah chapter 56, and my house will be a house of prayer. Now, Mark and Matthew give us a, a little bit fuller quotations. At any point, we have succinct summaries of what was actually said. My house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. This is a place that's going to be set aside for the Gentiles to come and to worship the one true and living God. And yet, they, the latter part comes from Jeremiah, it comes from a sermon that Jeremiah preached denouncing what the, what the temple and those who were leading the temple had become. But you have made it a den of robbers. You've made it a, a, a house of thieves. You're stealing and robbing from the people of God. Now, he's not talking about youth setting up a, a table in the lobby and selling tickets for a spaghetti meal to, to raise money, maybe to go on a, a youth trip or a mission trip. He's not talking about that. that. That's preposterous to try and equate that with this. This was intentionally, intentionally beguiling and stealing 
from the people of God and turning the house of God into a den of, to a den of, into a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And as Jesus is, is teaching in the temple and taking every opportunity to address the crowds, notice the contrast between the crowds and the religious leadership. Throughout the week, he's going to be teaching in the temple, it says in verse 47 and 48. But the chief priests and the scribes, they recognized people were were waiting with bated breath to hear what Jesus was going to say about a wide variety of topics. And they, they were hanging on every word. Some of them saw him come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the day prior to the cleansing of the temple. And they saw what he did in the temple, and they're waiting to hear what more he's going to say. And yet the religious leaders are despising him. They're wanting to put him to death. Notice, they're trying to put him to death. They're desiring to put him to death. They're going to plot to put him to death. What a contrast. These are the people that should have been leading God's people to worship God rightly. These are the people that should have been preparing the people to receive the Son of God, the God's Messiah, when He came. But all they can think about is power and financial gain. In fact, I, I want us to think about that for just a moment. Power and financial gain mattered more to them than truth and godliness. And they will do whatever is necessary to retain their power. They're willing to compromise their faith, their integrity, in order to retain their power. Well, we might think, well, is that relevant in the 21st century? It's absolutely relevant in the 21st century. How many evangelical superstars, and I've, I've mentioned this regularly, because by God's good grace, you have put together a, a ministerial staff that isn't serving for power or prestige. But the evangelical landscape is littered with men who treated the people that worked for them and the people that worked with them as if they were instruments to be used. And they speak depreciatory to them and about them. They mock and malign them. They bully and mistreat them. And they get what's coming to them when they're cast to the wayside. And they don't deserve to come back and be a leader of God's people, having compromised themselves and their integrity to that degree. They can sell cars, and selling cars is a laudatory profession. They can go back and, and get a second career in a different field. But don't call people like that back to positions of leadership. They have, they have abdicated the right to lead the people of God. And that's what we see right here. The, these people are concerned about power and gain, and they have little concern about truth and godliness. You can learn more about a person by the people that work with them than anybody else. Ask the people that work with them. They know what the person's really like. 
They know what, what they're like. None of us are perfect, but there's no place for bullies in ministerial leadership in the church. Well, from there, we turn to Tuesday. Beginning in chapter 20, we're on a new day. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. It's Tuesday of Holy Week. We're walking with Christ to the cross. The Gospels give us literally day-by-day accounts of what took place. The beauty of this is when we come to Holy Week every year, when we're seated around the table with our family, or maybe we're single and we share an apartment, uh, we can open our Bibles and we know what happened on the Saturday before the crucifixion, Sunday of the week of the crucifixion, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And we can walk with Jesus to the cross every, every year. That's what we're doing right now. We're on Monday morning, Jesus, in, I'm sorry, on Tuesday morning, Jesus is in Jerusalem and the entire day is going to be filled with conflict. His enemy are trying to trap him in a misstatement. They're trying to trap him in a misstep. And so they ask him in the first two verses of chapter 20, who, who gave you this authority? By what authority are you doing these things, primarily the, the clearing out of the temple, the overturning of the table of the money changers, the driving out of the animals? Who gave you this authority? By what power or authority are you doing these things? And Jesus is so wise, we ought to just be unbelievably impressed every time we read it by the way he handles their accusations and questions. And so he does something that rabbis would often do. He answers a question with a question. Let me ask you a question, he says, about John the Baptist. Who gave him the authority that he had? to say what he did and to do what he did. By what authority did John the Baptist serve? The implication is John's authority comes from God and Jesus' authority comes from the same place. And so they have, excuse me, a conference. They confer one with another because Jesus in his wisdom has put them between the proverbial rock and the hard place. If they say that John's authority came from God, then the crowd's going to want to know, then why weren't you baptized by John? And if they say that John's authority was human in its origin, then the crowd would stone them because all of them were were under the impression and believed that John was was a prophet of God. And so they show themselves to be the knuckleheads they are when they say, we just don't know. And Jesus says, consequently, he's not going to answer their question either. But he does answer their question. He answers it indirectly first by associating himself with God. And he answers the question secondarily with a parable of condemnation, a condemning parable, the parable of the vine growers. It's a simple parable, and as Michelle read it, I I have no doubt that you were able to to see who each person in the parable represented. But very quickly, let let me remind you, the owner of the vineyard is God himself. And the vineyard represents the people of God. So God is the God of the people of God, the 
owner of the vineyard is God and the vineyard represents God's people. The tenants who are overseeing the vineyard are the religious leaders. They're the ones that are to be caring for the people of God. They're the ones that are to be tending the garden. And they're the ones that are to give a portion of what they they gain or what they glean from the garden to the representatives, to the servants, to the slaves of the owner of the vineyard. You see, the owner's representatives, the, the slaves of the owner are the prophets. And you'll notice as Michelle read, there was an ascending uh, expression of abuse. Eventually, they began to kill some of the prophets. All you have to do is to read the history of Israel. When Israel was wayward, they rejected prophets. They denounced prophets at times. Clearly, the the son in the parable is Jesus. Jesus knows he's going to die. He came to Jerusalem to die. Now, we need to understand that often parables have hyperbole and they have um, unrealistic elements because they're part of a story. Uh, Sometimes we might call them a fable. But this is a story, it's a parable that corresponds to reality, but not in every way. For example, God doesn't wonder, I, I think maybe they'll, maybe they'll appreciate my son. Maybe they'll receive my son as if God doesn't know what's going to happen. God knew exactly what was going to happen, but it's part of the story world. Surely they're going to respect my son. They'll treat my son better than they have my slaves. Well, he knows exactly what's going to happen because he is, everything is car- being carried out is according to his plan. And the fact the son is killed and not raised from the dead, that's not, that shouldn't bother us at all. Notice they're going to throw the son out of the garden. They're going to kill the son, but the son isn't raised from the dead. But that's not part of the story. That's not why he's telling the story. He's telling the story in order for the people to understand the kind of men that are leading them. So Jesus asked the question, What will the owner of the vineyard do? What's he going to do to these people as a part of the story? He says he will destroy them. This is another reference where Jesus is prophesying that Jerusalem, 40 years after this event, is going to be destroyed by the Romans. The temple is going to be destroyed. Virtually everyone in the city is going to be killed by the Romans. And the vineyard is going to be taken from them and given to another. That to whom the vineyard is given is the church, made up of Christian Jewish people and Gentile Christian people, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. The church is the people of God. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And so the people are, they're astounded on two levels. One is that the leadership that they have is going to be destroyed. And secondly, the kingdom that they've been a part of is going to be ripped from them and given to a new people of God, given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. But Jesus goes on and quotes a, quotes a parable or not a parable, but a psalm, Psalm 118. 
verse 22. And so he looks at them and he says, then what is the statement that has been written? A stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This prophecy is about to be fulfilled. The stone which the builders rejected, they're going to reject the chief cornerstone. They're going to reject God's Son, God's Messiah. They're going to reject Him. This is a prophecy by Jesus as He quotes the Psalms as on the very verge of being fulfilled. Jesus is the cornerstone. And He is going to be a cornerstone of judgment. You may trip over the cornerstone, the cornerstone may fall on you, but if you don't believe in Him, trust in Him, live for Him, you're going to receive a devastating judgment from Him. Those who reject Him will be judged by Him. But there's also the element of salvation in what Jesus has quoted. This particular passage is quoted by Peter in the book of 1 Peter, is quoted by Paul in his writings, but it's also preached by Peter in the book of Acts. Listen to what Peter preached beginning in chapter 3 of Acts in verse 10. And what's happened in the previous verses is that Peter's just healed a, a paralyzed man who is laying by the road. Peter and John are on their way into the temple to pray. Jesus has already ascended to heaven. The day of Pentecost has already come. Peter has preached and 3,000 were saved in Acts chapter 2. Now in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're leading a group of believers to the temple to pray. And he heals this man. A crowd gathers, and like, a, like any good preacher, if there's a crowd, he's going to preach. He failed to take up an offering. That's the only place maybe he came short. But listen to what Luke writes. And Luke wrote these words as well, quoting Peter. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now think for just a moment who it is that's preaching these words and to whom he is preaching these words. This is Peter, who not that long ago had denied under the intense interrogation of a slave girl somewhere between 12 and 16 years of age, that he even knew Jesus. He withered like a young plant in the Palestinian sun. He demonstrated unbelievable cowardice. But you know what? We, we would have very likely done the same thing. Now he's preaching to people, some of whom were likely complicit in the execution of Jesus. He's preaching to the crowds and he says, whom you crucify. Whether they were actually impaled him on that cross or not, they didn't defend him. They didn't, they didn't uh, protect him. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. By this name... This man stands before you in good health, the man that he had healed. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, 
but which became the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22, the very Psalm Jesus used when confronting his enemies in the beginning of a day of controversy on Tuesday morning. And then Peter brings out an aspect that Jesus doesn't mention quite as forthrightly as Peter does here in that particular instance. And Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Notice the word must. There's no other way that any person can be made right with God except through Jesus Christ. There's no way that a man or woman or boy or girl can be reconciled to God but through the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in his name is to recognize him for who he is, our Lord and Savior. It's to acknowledge that I've lived my life for myself, whether I'm seven or 70. I've lived my life for myself, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's no other way that a person can be made right with God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no other name given among mankind by which we must be saved. And so what Peter is saying is that Jesus Christ is the door. And only through him can we find a right relationship with God. That's what we're about to do when we take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. If you're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that means Grady. You're a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're seeking to follow Jesus. You may be struggling in dwelling sin. We all do, but you're fighting it. Sometimes it's, you're taking more steps forward than backwards, and sometimes it seems like you're taking a couple steps backwards, but you're still fighting it. And if you're a guest with us today, and that's describes you, we'd invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us as well. Peter Holmes, the chairman of our deacons, will be serving us. Peter and Danielle serve faithfully, ministering in our college ministry and have for years. He'll be assisted by another deacon, Ryan Whitley. Ryan and Mindy play in our praise band. Ryan is a deacon, obviously. Mindy is a leader of one of Our Lady's discipleship groups. And as they lead us, we're going to be reminded of the fact Jesus is the cornerstone. For some, he comes as judge. But for most of us here this morning, he's come as Savior. So I pray I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward. I'll be stationed here at the back for those who are gluten intolerant or those who uh, are gluten free, and I'll be glad to serve you. Just slip out as the elements begin to be passed. Come to me, I'll serve you, and then you can go back and be seated with, uh, with your party. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone that is the crucial stone of the church. 
that by his name we have been saved. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that those who know him only as judge today, those who are looking toward an eternal judgment, that you would be as gracious toward them as you've been toward those of us who do know you and draw them out of the darkness and into the light and that they would put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.